Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in beautiful Denver, Colorado. And we have got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, up-close looks at iconic aircraft, and on today's show, hypersonic flight. It's time to go Behind the Wings. All right, we've made it to episode 25. We are so glad to have you along for the ride. Now, listen, I've been telling you this for 25 episodes. I'm going to keep telling you. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating. It's the best way for new people to discover the show, and we really do appreciate it. Or you could always share it with a friend, you know, just saying. Now, we're excited to bring you a high-speed episode today. I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me, as always, is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. All right, John, let him know what we have for him today. Well, today's topic is hypersonic flight and specifically how new methods of heat management could help usher in a new era for high-speed flight. Hypersonic flight refers to speeds of more than five times the speed of sound, or Mach 5. As a fighter pilot, I've flown supersonic many times at Mach 1, or in my case, even Mach 2. So Mach 1 is about 767 miles per hour if you're down here at sea level. But once you start talking about hypersonic speed, you're talking about a whole different subject. There is lots of challenges that come into play from propulsion limitations to materials that can withstand these high temperatures, economic feasibility, communications, physics, and more. So we're going to dive into many of these topics today to get a better sense of the state of hypersonic flight today and where the cutting edge of aerospace is headed. As you well know, I'm not a fighter pilot, and Mach 1 already seems pretty darn fast, but five times the speed of sound. I can hardly imagine what that's like, not only for someone flying the aircraft, but also for the aircraft itself to withstand those extreme conditions. When I went supersonic in an F-16, sometimes I didn't even know I was supersonic without just looking at the airspeed indicator. But, you know, rocket launchers, due to their high exhaust velocity, can travel about five to 10,000 miles per hour. So that is a good reference point for our listeners. And we'll also be touching on the space applications of hypersonic flight throughout the episode. All right. Very cool. You know, I love it when we get to talk about space on the podcast. And our guest today is Dr. Adam Dissel. As the president of Reaction Engines, Adam leads the U.S. side of Reaction Engines, including their facility at Colorado Air and Spaceport right outside of town in Watkins, Colorado, where they test engine cooling technology for applications in hypersonic flight. There is a lot to learn in this episode, so let's get started. Adam Dissel, welcome to the show. Hey, Rick. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully, you'll still feel that way when we're finished with you. Um, to, to start... <laughs> To start off, how about just kind of introducing yourself and how you ended up in the world of hypersonic flight? My background, uh, I'm a space nut since, you know, young child. Knew all the planes, knew all the space missions, knew all the astronauts, knew all the history, was the annoying kid in elementary school that corrected my teacher. I am one of those uh, geeky guys. I do have a PhD in aerospace engineering, and my emphasis is on launch vehicle design and mission architectures for launch vehicles and space missions. So from a technical standpoint, that's where I hailed from. I had a great opportunity to work for Lockheed Martin here in Colorado for about nine years, where I uh, headed up a team 
it worked on new architectures for space launch, along with some really other really great smart folks, and then had a chance to come to this Reaction Engines gig. So I've been was the first employee for Reaction Engines in the U.S. It's a British company. Started with the idea of how do I do space planes? How do I do horizontal takeoff and landing like an airplane to go to space? That's where we got started as a company, uh, and I was excited by that and everything else the company was doing. And so uh, they brought me on, and I've started the U.S. subsidiary for that company. Excellent, excellent. Help us introduce the concept of hypersonics. All hypersonic speeds are also supersonic, but most and not all supersonic speeds are hypersonic. So how does hypersonic at Mach 5 compare to supersonic, let's say, at Mach 1 or 2? What makes hypersonic flight a unique challenge? Let's talk about the speed of sound just really quickly. It's a really interesting concept. We think about it, you know, I hear something, speed of sound. But at a basic level, the speed of sound really is how fast information is being able to propagate through the air. So the speed of sound is different in different mediums. So the speed of sound in water is different. The speed of sound through metal is different. So it's really kind of the speed of molecular information transfer. It's like a traffic jam on the freeway. When it's free-flowing, when I get to a speed of sound, I now get to the point where they actually bump into each other, and that's where those shock waves come from when you go faster than Mach 1. They can't communicate nicely with each other to get out of the way. So when you're in your normal aircraft flying across the Atlantic under the speed of sound, the air molecules going over the wing, they have time to kind of adjust. The one that binds the plane first kind of can, through a pressure sense, can kind of tell the one behind it, hey, something's in our way. And they can kind of smoothly get out of the way. Once you get to Mach 1, the one behind finds out when he hits the one in front on the back. The information's not fast enough to transmit, hey, there's something in our way. So you get this pile up and you get these shock waves, and it changes the physics of the airflow quite substantially once you're above Mach 1. So you've flown faster than Mach 1. The old planes, you know, as they got to that point, it was really quite an event. You know, it took an increasing huge amount of power. Your airplane would have let you know that you were transitioning the sound barrier. Now they're a little, uh, little better. So as you get faster and faster, those same physics hold on. And what happens in hypersonic, and hypersonic we usually define as Mach 5, but that's not, there's nothing magical that happens at hypersonic. It's not like the flow changes from red to green. Something does kind of magically happen at Mach 1. The air behaves totally differently. When we get to Mach 5, what happens is the air gets really hot when it hits an obstacle. You can get chemical dissociation, you can get the chemistry of the air can actually change, and there starts to be different physics that come in operative there. So you get really a lot faster, you start to get to plasma in the airflow. And that's what the shuttle always had to deal with on re-entry. It was going so fast, hypersonically, much faster than Mach 5. But the air was really, you know, coming apart all around that vehicle. And that was what led to that plasma and that radio interference and that blackout. So uh, when we talk about hypersonics, uh, it's really just a fast supersonic, but it's now going so fast that we start to have to really worry about modeling the flow a little differently than we do at Mach 2 or Mach 3 because some different physics start to become operative. And the faster you go, the more important they are to take account of. I will just say just for our listeners, you know, Mach 5, it's about a mile a second is, is what you're moving. So if you've got a 40-mile commute, it's a 40-second commute. So it's really, really moving. First off, Adam, thanks. Great overview of the topic. And before we get any further, let I'm going to go back and, and look at history a little bit with you, the history of hypersonic flight. So there was the Silbervogel, right, which was the first hypersonic weapon developed by German scientists way back in the 30s. And then during the first manned orbital flight in April of 61, Russian Major Yuri Gagarin became the first human to reach hypersonic speeds. Also in 1961, Air Force Major Robert White reached speeds exceeding Mach 6 as he piloted the X-15 research aircraft. So we learned an awful lot through those early experiments. 
We are now 62 years removed from that. Hypersonic has to have evolved. How have you seen that? So one thing to notice is the different way you propel a vehicle to that speed. So most of the examples you just mentioned are rocket propelled and rockets are tremendously good at really getting moving really fast, really quickly. So if you're talking to an airplane engineer, you start talking about Mach 5, they start going, wow, that is fast. That's really fast. If you're talking to the launch vehicle engineers at SpaceX or at United Launch Alliance, Mach 5 is nothing. They get there in, you know, a minute off the pad. Mach number, speed of sound, doesn't really mean anything in a vacuum up in space. So from a rocket standpoint, you can go much faster. So when you're on orbit, you're going five miles a second. That's part of the difference is to understand when we're talking about an aircraft that's kind of deeper in a thick atmosphere and trying to breathe the air through an engine, like a, like a jet engine or a ramjet or a scramjet like you saw in the Top Gun movie, versus a rocket that's just got a, a big firecracker on the back and it's just going to keep accelerating until it's out of fuel. But from air breathing standpoint from history, the SR-71 Blackbird, is really our gold standard. So it was a, a, an advanced jet engine that could go to Mach 3.4. And the reason it couldn't go any faster is it literally started to melt itself. The air going through the engine starts to get so hot that it starts to exceed what the engine can handle. There's been a few research programs, uh, X-43, X-51, that have done air breathing tests at higher speeds than up into the Mach 5 uh, area, but only for handfuls of seconds. So it's not a place that we have mastery of in an air-breathing propulsion standpoint. So from a technology standpoint, we're talking about high-speed aircraft in the atmosphere. There's a lot still to be done, and there's lots of innovations going on all around us. You know, when you think about it, though, you know, the SR-71 was developed by Lockheed Martin in the 1960s. I mean, here we are at 2023, and, you know, we had an airplane that could fly Mach 3 in those days. It's, it's just incredible to figure that history and how secret it was in the Area 51 in, in those days. But there are many examples of hypersonic flight today and possible cases, as you kind of alluded to, in military applications. We see it in rapid global strike capabilities and missile defense systems like rockets. And, of course, with rocket launches and space exploration, we see hypersonic flight pretty much whenever we leave Earth orbit. I mean, the space shuttle, when it came in, was Mach 20 plus on reentry. But there is this uh, potential for ultra-fast commercial passenger travel that could bring passengers from New York to Tokyo in two hours, which is, you know, hard to imagine. But explain a little bit the difference between a hypersonic aircraft and a scramjet. You alluded to a little bit about the air breathing, but maybe a little more detail would be helpful. Let's talk about a few different propulsion types. So you've got a jet engine, you have a ramjet, and you have a scramjet. All of those are achieving thrust through jet propulsion. So let's talk about some differences. In a jet engine, in order to compress that air at the front, you've got those big fans, big compressor section, big fans. You're trying to compress the air by shoving it through each of those stages of the fan to a tighter and tighter space. And you're shoving it down the pipe and you're lighting it off. When you fly faster and faster and faster, the temperature limits on those fan blades at the back end start to be a problem. As I compress air, it gets really hot. So in a compressor section of a jet engine, as you get to the final section, right before you squirt the fuel in, you can actually get the air so hot that it exceeds the, the metal capability of that blade. And then I, I can't actually build a device that can handle it anymore. So that's been a practical limit why we can't fly with the jet engines faster than the Blackbird. So we jump to a ramjet. It achieves compression a whole different way. It's basically moving through the air fast already and you open up the front and the air just gets jammed in it. But that means the ramjet has to already be moving. I can't start a ramjet from standstill on a runway. 
I can a jet engine because those big compressor blades will get the engine going. But on a ramjet, I have to already be really hauling in order to force the air down the front without those blades. And once I've got that air force down the front, I can add fuel and expand it out the back and I can make more thrust than the drag that inlet makes. And then I have a vehicle that will accelerate with a ramjet. So it's right in the name, the ram. You're ramming the air in the front just because you're already moving fast. But if you're going to talk about a commercial aircraft that's going to fly New York to Tokyo, it's not a lot of good if it needs a completely separate propulsion system for takeoff up to Mach 1. And then it switches to a ramjet. You know, then you're carrying an engine for dead weight and drag. Typically, we've only seen ramjets small scale and in some missiles. Scramjet is the same kind of thing, only even faster. In a ramjet, even when I'm moving, let's say, at Mach 2, the air as I'm jamming it in the front is decelerated, and it actually slows down below the speed of sound. In the process, it gets really hot. And that's where that temperature comes from, and like these engines we talked about, the SR-71, is the air that's coming in is getting decelerated in the engine, and it's gaining a lot of temperature as it does that. In a scramjet, you actually are decelerating the air still, but the air is always above the speed of sound, all the way through the engine. So it's a supersonic combustion ramjet. So that's where the SC comes in a scramjet. So that brings some interesting challenges because now I've got to squirt fuel into the air, get it to light, get it to atomize, mix, combust, and release its energy, all while it's moving a fifth of a mile a second through the engine or faster. So scramjets are a way to go even faster. So a, a ramjet you could go up to about Mach 4-ish is a good rule of thumb. A scramjet could take over at Mach 3 or 4 and it could go potentially up above 10, 11, 12 if you wanted to, though most of the designs I see these days are more in the 7 kind of place. You're kind of on a spectrum of how do I compress the air and get still positive thrust out the back. You know, I remember being um, a young airman on the island of Guam at Anderson Air Force Base in 1976 when the SR-71 dropped by, right? And it it happened a couple of times in my 15 months that I was there. It was a pretty uh, uh, handy refueling location, I think, there. But to see that thing take off and go, I remember being in shock the first time I saw it. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life at that point. Yeah, some big afterburners. There's a lot of exciting possible applications for hypersonic flight, but when it comes to, you mentioned it, New York to Tokyo in two hours on a commercial flight, we're not there yet. Let's talk about some of the technical and engineering problems or issues or things that just stand in the way of realizing the ultimate potential of hypersonic. I mean, do we need new metals? Do we need to combine rockets and jets? I mean, what, what makes it so hard? I would say just as a, as a human innovation culture, we've gotten really good at pushing things to the limit of what's possible. In the jet engines uh, that we're flying on, it's not moving SR-71 speeds, but there are portions inside that engine that are as hot as the SR-71 engine was. And we've just gotten comfortable that we've modeled that, we've designed it, we've tested it, and we're, we're operating at that ragged edge in a lot of places. If you want to advance from there, you need new material or you have to manage your energy differently. One of the things our company is looking a lot at for this high-speed propulsion is, all right, I can't push this air-breathing engine faster than Blackbird without melting my engine. What if I had a really amazing refrigerator heat exchanger on the front of the engine, and as that air got hot, I just quenched it. So the air comes in, gets slowed down, it gets compressed, and and I'm sucking the temperature out. Just steal it. And then I let the engine have it when it's not so hot, then the engine's happy, doesn't melt. But now I've got a coolant that I've used in this heat exchanger to pull all this temperature out. Like, you know, radiator in a car, great, it pulls heat off the engine, but now I've got hot coolant. (laughs) And I don't, you know, what do I do with that? 
well then I want to move that heat around the engine to do something else and so a real trick we've looked at is I take that hot coolant run it through a turbine and use it to drive some of the turbo machinery of the engine itself rather than do it all through burning fuel or I generate my onboard power that the aircraft needs because right now when you're when you're generating power on an aircraft you're actually taxing the turbine engine on the wing you're using it to run a generator to run electric power on the aircraft if I could run that generator off my hot coolant line instead, well then I'm not sapping the engine for that shaft work and it can be a little bit more efficient also. So there's some tricks about how to use heat in a smart way. And if you'll bear with me for one analogy that I really, really love. I was a scout master for many, many years and I, I went up to a lake in Wyoming and I had my 11-year-old scouts trying to get the canoeing merit badge. And I don't know if you and our listeners have ever been in a canoe on a windy day. But these scrawny little 11-year-olds were all blown up against the same shore on the opposite side of the lake. And no matter how hard they paddled, they could not get off the shore. <laughs> they just weren't, there wasn't enough horsepower. Anyway, so the wind was their adversary. And for us in high-speed propulsion, heat is our impediment. It is. If I want to fly faster, I've got to be able to manage the heat differently. If I want to do more efficient energy generation on Earth in terrestrial power plants, I have to manage the heat differently. If I want to do ex extract waste heat out of commercial airliners and re-inject it to get more efficient commercial air travel, I have to manage the heat differently. So let's go back to my scouts. The scouts that were the 12-year-olds were doing the sailing merit badge, and they had little sailboats on the lake. They were having a grand, wonderful time on the lake because the technology had transformed the wind, which was the adversary, into their friend. They were on the same lake, basically the same age, but they were having a different experience because the technology of the sail and the keel transforms what they're able to do with wind. Maybe that's a little sappy of an example, but we're trying to transform what you can do with heat. What can you do with energy and heat if you could move it around where you wanted it? That's a really good explanation. You know, when we think about hypersonic, we have some misconceptions. I can even remember as a fighter pilot, people would say, well, you know, in the F-4 that I flew in the F-16, you know, the air enters the intake of the engine, and it kind of curves a little bit around, plus it's got a stabilator that breaks it up, and the engine couldn't accept supersonic air. Well, it's really is a problem with the heat, and that's a major distinction. I'm glad you used that analogy. So let's get more into the heat management side of things. Certainly a key thing to figure out for hypersonic flight at the Colorado Air and Space Board, your company, has a test facility. Where you are able to run controlled experiments on engine cooling technology is state-of-the-art. Yeah, one thing that's pretty cool, and uh, no pun intended when we're talking about heat exchanging, is you're using a General Electric J79 jet engine, the same one that was used in the F-104 Starfighter and the F-4 that I flew, one of several Century Series aircraft that we have here at Wings Over the Rockies, right on our floor. So why focus on engine cooling and walk us through that, uh, how that facility works and what you're doing there that's unique? When you get to hypersonics, it's extremely hard to simulate the pressures, the temperatures, the mass flows that are going to be experienced when you're moving a mile a second through the air. So one of the reasons we've struggled to be very fast at you know, these higher speed systems, is it's, it's very hard to get a lot of experience on the ground at a cheap price. So we, we're stuck with where do I find an ability to replicate on the ground the temperature of air that had become in an aircraft moving at Mach 5. And the temperature that we're after at that condition is 1800 Fahrenheit, 1000 degrees centigrade. And for those who may not know the temperature scale is awesome, just think about it as the temperature of lava. That's 1800 Fahrenheit. So that's what's coming in to my engine before I've even compressed it and made it even hotter. I need to continuously pull that much energy out of it. Megawatt classes of energy. As fast as the air is coming in, I've got to quench it, just con con continuously. 
And so that's what our, our challenge was to test. And we found out there wasn't really any place, even with the U.S. government's amazing test facilities, that could replicate what we needed. So what we ended up doing is we took a bit of a page. I wish I could claim complete genius for this, but a bit of a page out of the uh, J-58, which was the engine for the Blackbird, and the Olympus, which was the engine for the Concorde. And what they did is they tested those engines behind another jet engine. So they used the first jet engine on the, as the source of high temperature air out of the exhaust and then made the second engine eat it as a way to replicate a high temperature. So that was the inspiration for the idea. Ours had to be a little bit better than that because I needed to control the pressures and temperatures and duct it a little differently, but that was the inspiration. So then I needed a real, an engine I could use to give me a lot of temperature and a lot of air mass flow, and that's our J79 jet engine from the F4 Phantom. Now for us, it's just our hair dryer. It's a source of hemp temperature and a source of mass flow, but it also is 120 decibels, which is louder than the Thunderbirds at the air show because unlike the engines in the Thunderbirds, this one has, the J79 has no bypass. <laughs> it's a straight, straight turbojet. <laughs> so it is a, a loud sucker. So one of the reasons we went to the Colorado Air and Spaceport is we needed a place to run a jet engine on the ground where people wouldn't look at us askance. And people don't tend to get too nervous about running a jet engine on an airport. But what we do with that and what we've done at Colorado Air and Spaceport with our TF2 facility is we put our heat exchanger technology behind that test setup. And we have, with uh, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency and the Air Force Research Labs help, validated uh, our, our heat exchanger, our pre-cooler, engine pre-cooler technology. So we have blasted it with 1800 Fahrenheit air for 20 minutes at flight-like conditions, and that, uh, that device quenched that down to ambient conditions continuously. The device we tested was about a meter in diameter, so think about it as a drum. The heat exchanger pre-cooler drum would sit in the front of an engine and would quench the air before it got to the compressor. The uh, social media picture we did not get that I wanted to have was to have an ice cream cone in the flow at the exhaust and to show with the infrared camera that we were air as hot as lava on one end and my ice cream cone was not melting on the other. Is that right? That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> so over the course of you know a two-foot or three-foot distance, that's the difference we're making. And so that's where we're at. Our inspiration was certainly to do that to enable high speed originally. But having proven that that technology works, we are finding a lot of places to put it in and beyond high speed and beyond aerospace. We are actually in several different Formula One cars this year, adapted it into a intercooler unit in a, uh, it's a charge cooler on a Formula One motorsport uh, vehicle, and it's about the size of a coffee can, but it's uh, doing a tremendous job in helping to increase the efficiency of that engine cycle. So we're uh, having validated at this extremely punishing lava-like condition, we're now finding that we've bought ourselves a lot of credibility to go peddle our solutions other places as well. <laughs> so it's a good example of where aerospace investment always shows up in lots of places. Once you can prove something in an aerospace environment, you always find other places to take advantage of it. Yeah, that's an amazing way to describe it. So you got this huge hairdryer, <laughs> this J7 engine, blowing this heat. But you have microtube chambers uh, with coolant that's going through it. These are small tubes. Help our audience understand a little bit about and how they can have a big impact. So the reason for the microtubes, what we've got is we've got coolant running on the inside of the tube, and then the air is being cooled off by touching the outside of the tube. And the reason you want to go to microtube is the smaller diameter you can make that tube, the more surface area the outside of the tube has compared to how big the diameter is going through. So I maximize my surface area, the smaller I can make that tube. And how small? We're talking about tubes that are the size of hypodermic needles that you go give blood with. And the technology breakthrough for us as reaction engines is the ability to join 
and build that device with those tubes and the wall thicknesses of those tubes are, are teeny tiny on the order of a, of a human hair's thickness and they have to hold the coolant on the inside at very high pressure and not leak and also transfer that tremendous amount of punishing thermal energy so that's really the manufacturing breakthrough and uh, that device I was talking about that drum that we tested for that engine pre-cooler if you were to flatten all the surface area of all the tubes out it's uh, between a third and a half of a football field of surface area so that air when it's coming through in a blink of an eye is going in an engine duct that might be two feet in diameter but then it's encountering the equivalent of half a football field of surface area with coolant on the back half and that's how we're able to pull that much heat out so quickly that's kind of the trick I'm trying to process all of this. This has been a whole heck of a lot of stuff on this microtube technology. Talk to me a bit about what other developments are exciting in the area. I know you've mentioned the things that you're working on at Reaction, but you know, what are you seeing on like heat-resistant materials or, or other things that are being done with the microtechnology? What's happening out there that has you think, man, we still have a lot to do with this? If you could really move heat around without being penalized for the mass and the performance loss is too much, you know, what could you do? Rather than design a leading edge of, a, of an aircraft that's just trying to survive with this high heat, you know, the shuttle's basically glowing on re-entry, right? What if I had a leading edge heat exchanger that pulled that heat out and used it to drive the propulsion system? Or we're already getting there on the automotive. I mean, there's cars out there that are pulling energy off the brakes and using it to recharge the batteries. Or a power plant has got smokestacks that are putting out hot air as a byproduct of the combustion process. If I could put microtube heat exchangers in those smokestacks and capture an additional 20% of the power out of that hot gas, and re-inject it back to the power plant. I'm still having exhaust come out of that power plant, but I'm getting more for it. So that's one application, just you know, waste, heat, and energy transformation. Some of the others, though, are enabling new types of systems with different fuels. So you start talking about ammonia or hydrogen particularly. There's a lot of difficulties handling and moving out hydrogen. But the nice thing about burning hydrogen is it doesn't make carbon in a byproduct. You're still left with how do I make hydrogen without having a carbon dioxide chain. And but there's technology areas there that if you could do things more efficiently from a hydrogen generation process, could you get a net carbon improvement in the system? So we like to talk about from well to wake. You know, we don't want to just talk about how efficient the engine is. We want to talk about from the well where you got it to the wake where you left it. How do I optimize that ecosystem? That's an excellent explanation, Adam. With liquid hydrogen fuels, the emissions would be different than traditional jet engines. How does that factor into the atmospheric effects? Everything when it comes to the extra stress on the aircraft itself with the potential for accidents or debris, how do you think about the safety aspect of this technology you're developing? We've got a system and a way of handling things that we've gotten comfortable with with some substances and some safety measures and some cast, you know, some overlapping ways to make sure we don't often have problems. When we deal with some of these systems like hydrogen that we don't have as much experience with, we just need to gain that experience and see what can be done. So people will say, you know, hydrogen is dangerous and uh, certainly be people who argue that it's harder. You know, with experience, I think we can get on top of that. Let's wrap up with this. I'll get one final thought in, and I, I think I've combined like about five things into this one question, but we'll see how successful that is. But, you know, we'll start with first, are we moving towards a world where you really believe these things are possible? I mean, you know what? This is obtainable. And second, in the words of my mother, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Do we get to a point where how fast is fast and, and what's the need to go fast? faster, you know, talk about the future. 
Let me give you an answer in two flavors. Let's go with strategic defense flavor and a commercial flavor. So uh, from a strategic defense flavor, there are, there are certainly missions out there that going faster and flying higher and getting further have benefit. So those are things that the U.S. and other uh, nations are continually looking at. How fast is fast enough? Things get really hard as you get moving really fast. Me personally, I think for the next generation of capabilities, moving in the Mach 4 to Mach 5 area is a tremendous jump in capability from where we've been before. We are biting off as an industry scramjet to particularly smaller scales. We're getting better at them when they're like missile-sized. Doing them at platform scale, doing them as big as an aircraft would be to fly, you know, as big as an SR-71, let's say, is still quite a bit beyond our experience level with those kind of propulsion technologies. And they, and they don't scale all perfectly nice. But uh, I do think there's a world there where higher speed stuff earns its way in from a capability standpoint. For commercial, it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of trades out there on the value of speed. And one thing you can make an argument for is that flying as fast as Concorde is just a little too slow. Because, you know, when I fly, my, my boss sits in the UK. When I go to see my boss, I lose a day in transit to get there. I'm there for, let's say, a day for a meeting, and I lose a day on the return. If I fly Mach 2, I still lose that day at the beginning and at the end. I save several hours in the transit. I don't gain back a day. But if I fly Mach 4, I now can wake up in New York, fly to London for an afternoon meeting, and get home by dinner in New York. So I've just given you two days of your life back. Two full days of your life back. So it would be a premium market, perhaps, to start with. But if you think about you know, the premium business travelers and people, if they did that trip you know, six times a year and you could give them back 12 days of their life, and there is some really interesting economies of speed there. From a commercial standpoint, civil standpoint, we need to really crack that nut. The value of speed and how do we still do it in a way to be kind to the planet. Great stuff. Well done. Well, well explained. Yeah, well, thank you very much for this, Adam, and, and uh, continued success at uh, Reaction. John and I will be following from not that far away. We're, we're fairly close to Colorado Air and Spaceport, so we can, we can be cheerleaders over here, but uh, continued success on the work. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thank you for listening. I fly into uh, Spaceport quite a bit, so next time I'll buzz you as I'm going by. Only at about uh, 130 miles an hour, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just be aware that when the J-79's on, John, the bypass duct points vertically out of there. <laughs> so don't come. You might get a good updraft, so not too close. Well, maybe I'll come over there with my glider. That's when I really need there to you go. There you go. Okay. Just to circle up and there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Adam Dissel, for joining us. What a great opportunity to dive into the topic of hypersonic flight. You know, there's so many interesting aspects of this topic I hadn't considered. You know, John, I love the way he taught all of us, you, me, everybody listening to the podcast this week. He is an excellent instructor. Uh, tell me your takeaways. I second that thought completely. You know, it takes a unique individual to take complex explanations and get them down to the basic elements that all of us can understand. And I've been in this area for 50 years, you know, but he taught me more than I've done in any of the other podcasts that we've done. So I really give him credit for that. But, you know, the spin-off capability is the one that I really have as takeaway because it's not just about going hypersonic in an airplane. I mean, this technology that they're developing can be applied to any kind of heat exchange environment whether it be in a manufacturing factory or it be in a car or just be in your home. So I think uh, there's tremendous spinoffs 
that we're going to even see even more so based on what they're doing out there at uh, Spaceport. So that was insightful. Yeah, that was a very, very good. All right. Well, that's going to do it, folks. We all need a nap now after learning all that. We hope you enjoyed episode 25 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. And don't forget, we've got new episodes coming out every other Monday. Make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and subscribe. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a review. It's the best way to get our show out there, and we greatly appreciate hearing from you. Hey, we'll see you next time, right here on Behind the Wings.